0: Hi there. Recording started. Oh, there we go. Hi. I'm going to let Rich take over and take us through the PowerPoint presentation we put together, but as we're doing so, I'm going to keep an eye on the chat and we will try to adapt and address any questions you have, so go ahead and type them in and I'll keep a running record and we will adjust as needed.
1: Okay, our um, our topic today is uh, how new technologies have and have not changed teaching and learning in schools. In this uh, paper, we did a paper for um, Journal of, what's the title, Journal of Research,
0: Computing.
1: Journal of Computing and Teacher Education that just came out earlier this year. We did a, a paper and it, was, uh, it really came out of Annette's and my discussions about the state of the art of technology use in schools. Um what we one of the things that we that we've thought about is I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about the background of our of our study. Um I've been doing work, I'm in the Ed Leadership program and I've been doing work for a while now on how schools are adapting information technologies to uh, to meet the demands of no child left behind and meet accountability policies. And it struck me sort of a, a weird thing that as schools are making these huge advancements in transforming how they use information technologies there's also there's a whole other area of the world where there where schools are not making much progress at all, but that in areas like entertainment and personal uses of, of technology there's a huge exploding world of, of, of information resources and it struck me as sort of odd that while schools were going in one direction of student information systems and learning management systems, society was going in another direction of customizing technologies for personal use. So um, as we talked over the course of a, of a couple of years actually, we decided to put these, our thoughts down and, and write a paper about how technologies have and have not changed teaching and learning in schools. Do you want to say a little bit about how you to the topic?
0: And I would say that one of the the beauties of being in an environment like this is that Rich and I were able to volley back and forth with our ideas of what it really meant to change education with technology and and how it, there's almost a split personality in what we do in schools and that we have a great deal of technology, but it doesn't really change the fundamental nature of learning for, for students. And so I think between the, um, with the opportunity of being able to just continue to volley back and forth, that shaped this this argument that we're making.
1: We'd like to talk a little bit about the main points in the paper. Um, One of the things that that we hope to talk about is the hopes of the technological revolution for schools, and we talk a little bit about this in the paper, about what people thought was going to happen as a result of information technologies in schools. And then we'll contrast a little bit, the expectations a little bit, with how have technologies actually changed schools? And we try to capture this contrast in a comparison between what we call technologies for learning and technologies for learners. And we'll end up by providing a contrast of two kinds of technology that are almost use the same sorts of database and and and. Um, and uh, learning systems, but to very different ends, um, fantasy sports and virtual charter schools. So, schools really um, were organized in the early part, American public schools particularly, in the early part of the 20th century and the late 19th century around the most cutting edge information technologies that were available. Um, the, the widespread printing of textbooks, the um, uh, uh, building architectures that could house massive amounts of kids, and particularly the information technology of bureaucracy, was really powerful for uh, and, and made a big imprint on the on the first schools that that we had in in, um, in 20th century America. By the time the 1920s and 1930s came around schools really were sort of, had become a system in the United States. High schools were put in place and became almost universal by the 1930s and 1940s. And the different parts of the American school system from kindergarten to elementary schools to high schools to colleges and universities and vocational uh, schools became linked together by the information technology of bureaucracy and the the famous uh, education scholar David Tyack talks about this as the one best system that became over time very resilient and very successful at meeting the needs of all kinds of different students, but also became locked in place and committed to the core technology of, of instruction that guided the early, you know, development of the early public schools. In the 1950s, as a result of World War to and as a result of advances in cybernetics, people started to see the possibility for a new kind of information technology, which is computation. And Howard Gardner's book The Mind's New Science, which is really a a nice read, talks about the birth of cognitive science and cognitive psychology in the 1950s. Um, Psychology in the 1950s had become um, strongly influenced by behaviorism. And the emphasis in behaviorism is what can we see? We, that that's really what determines what we can study in psychology. But computers provided a whole different direction for psychology in the 1950s and beyond, because computers allow us to model complex processes. And so, as Gardner writes, the computer allowed us to allowed us to build viable models of how the human mind functions. It could emulate um, complex cognitive processes so we could compare the models with real behavior. And this is really the advent of cognitive science and as many of you know who, are, who study things like economy or um, economics or sociology, computational models have just swept over the social sciences and really transformed how we study complex social functions. The advent of computers which allowed people to investigate these processes that were closed before really opened up entirely new areas of investigation. And it wasn't long before when before when computers became um, personalized, people started to see the same kinds of things could happen in classrooms. So, uh, Seymour Papert was one of the early enthusiasts and advocates of computing in, in classrooms and Seymour Papert talked about how computers could radically change the relationship between students teachers and learning if you put PCs in the hands of kids kids can then create models of their own understanding that could be the topic of education prior to to the age of the, the sort of the 1980s age of computers but the, the predominant um, instructional model in schools was Here's some knowledge. You need to master this knowledge and prove it by recitation and demonstration. But computers allowed students to take control of their own learning and allowed teachers to see the process or the models that kids were using to 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 uh, develop new understanding. Well, it it was this was pretty heady stuff in the nineteen in the nineteen eighties and many, many researchers and educators really started to get excited about the the promise of digital technologies for education, including I'm thinking that some of the people in this room. Um, Do you have things to say here?
0: Well, I'm I'm watching the discussion on the side too and and I think we have a lot of um, Seymour Papert fans. I'm wondering how many of you were around in the 80s when all of a sudden we were so excited because we thought computers were going to come in it really changed to that learner driven instructional model could could you raise your hand if you were around at that time? Yeah, there are a few I see. you saw pictures of us, so you kind of have an age frame for us yeah, and it was an ex- and I, and I was one of those people we were so excited because we were so sure this was going to be the the time for those of us who really were constructivist um leading educators?
1: It wasn't just teachers, it was policymakers and government leaders. I, I went to grad school in the 1990s. Um, I went to a really interesting program at Northwestern University where they, it was called the Learning Sciences, they sort of broke down the barriers between cognitive psychology, computer science, and education. And Northwestern wasn't the only program to do this in the 90s. There was an, a huge wave of interest in how technology would change the way we think about teaching and learning. There was a massive investment of public resources that attempted to create universal access to technology in schools. This is based by the federal government, and some of these numbers I think are really extraordinary. Um, from 95 to 2000, $8 billion in educational technology. In 1998 alone, 2.7% of all educational expenditures went into technology. It's an extraordinary number of, uh, extraordinary amount of resources. While the government was trying to create um, uh, a a technological infrastructure in many schools, the uh, uh, foundations and grant agencies were trying to spark examples of best practice. So the National Science Foundation and the MacArthur Foundation and the National Institute of Health were all funding huge investments in how how could we demonstrate how these technologies could be used. I actually, most of my graduate student education was paid for by grants that were trying to develop new ways of thinking about curriculum, new science education models, new models for math education. So you had in the 90's you had this significant public commitment to infrastructure and also a commitment to what should we do with this infrastructure. Okay. Um, so what happened? <laughs> no child left behind. Let me go back here. What happened? Um, there was a uh, the, the narrative about the, how technology was going to change the world of teaching and learning took place right alongside another narrative, and this was the narrative of equity, of uh, equal, of uh, social justice, and equal rights. Um, there was a gradual shift in the conversation about American education in going into the 1950s, and um, It was a shift in in a conversation between access to the outcomes of education. Up until the 1950s, 1940s and 1950s, most investments in public education had to do with making sure that there were schools for everybody to go to, making sure that there were classrooms that could satisfy people's appetite for education. But starting with the Brown decision in 1954 and the war on poverty, the public discussion turned from access, which is basically giving schools for people to go to, to outcomes. What happened as a result of schooling? The IDEA acts in 73 and and beyond really started to shift the conversation. We started to talk about how we needed to customize public education resources to make sure that people learned. And this public responsibility for the outcomes of education really shifted the way we think about about public education. The culmination of this uh, gradual historical movement was really No Child Left Behind, which finally said, it's sort of the high water point for the civil rights movement in education, in that it said, um, we need to provide common assessment outcomes for all students as a result of the investment of public dollars. And so, you know, as a result of this, let me shift to the next slide, the standards and accountability movement that came from No Child Left Behind really transformed how we think about outcomes in education. National high-stakes accountability policies called for disaggregated data reporting. I don't know about in your states, but in Wisconsin we have a site called the WINS website that has the breakdown of each grade, each school, each demographic group, in each subject area. And so you can, just by being at your desktop, tell how each school did with each student population over the course of the last five, seven years. It's really an extraordinary research tool and you can be sure that it's linked to most real estate sites, too, to determine help people determine home values. The public access to student achievement data really drove the point home about what schools are going to be held accountable for. Well, there are several big consequences of this. One thing is that that uh, NCLV completely transformed administrative practices. All schools started to have to develop student information systems and focus on the on the implementation of what works. So this is a, it's sort of an interesting wrinkle here. Best practice turned into what works, which is best practice is sort of an eclectic model that based it's based on your autonomy and your discretion to pick a good practice. What works is what's good for everybody, and the implementation of what works really put the point on how NCLB-related um, uh, NCLB uh, innovations had to focus on the greatest good for the greatest number. And it led to a very conservative approach to instruction where school districts were very reluctant to start to, to embrace things that were chancy, embrace things that, that uh, could have multiple outcomes or could not work for lots of kids leaving no child behind really emphasizes low-risk solutions. So what happened to the to all that technology infrastructure in the 1990s? Well, part of what we argue for in the paper is that the infrastructure became completely co-opted by the standards and accountability requirement of NCLB and the front offices of schools were transformed. The administrative practices were transformed, but classroom practices largely stayed the same, untouched by information technologies. So the contrast that we want to draw here is that
0: When you go to the next slide, I'm going to respond kind of to what Aaron is saying and I think that's a fair question. He asked, does No Child Left Behind emphasize this or did the educational establishment allow this to happen? And I would say as we laid out the argument, how much of it was also the result of an emphasis on equity And the use of what could have been a tool to be really creative and expand out for everyone that became a tool to measure and be accountable and provide equity, you know, the same for everyone. And that's really what best practice became. And so, yes, the educational establishment allowed this to happen. And yes, No Child Left Behind. I mean, there's a yes, all of it.
1: I think it's one of the points we try to make in our paper is that it's hard to figure out the villain here. Um, a lot of discussion about either the, the, the uh, virtues or the vices of NCLB um, or the virtues and vices of technology policy look for somebody who's responsible for why it can't be at its best. And one of the points we try to make in our paper is that if NCLB is the logical outcome of the Civil Rights Movement, it has adopted technologies that um, help establish the ends of the civil rights movement, which is how can we create the most learning opportunities for the most people in our schools. And it's a, um, uh, it, that emphasis on equal outcomes for all students really runs directly in the face of much of the much of the direction that interesting technology innovations are going in. So we tried to capture the contrast between sort of the NCLB uses of technology with the public entertainment uses of technology in this contrast between learning versus learners. And our slides got a little bit messed up with the formatting, but bear with us here. Um, we tried to capture the contrast in that schools are very good at adapting technologies that guarantee learning. And by learning, we mean things that the, the, the outcomes that are um, uh, the outcomes that are captured by standardized tests. Out-of-school technologies focus on the needs of learners and they focus on things like customization and adaptation to individual learning needs. And our argument is that technologies for learning have flourished in schools, but technologies for learners have struggled very much in schools.
0: And this would, this would go back to something I think Tim, our rabble browser, said earlier in that what do the numbers really mean and what does learning really mean? And it's, it's another conversation that Rich and I frequently have about achievement does not equal learning. You know, the accountability and achievement scores Are not the same as real learning and that's why we so clearly delineate technologies that facilitate learning versus technologies for learners.
1: So, So we drew up five contrasts between these two approaches to technology and we'd like to go through them and talk about them in some detail. The first one is that technologies for learning emphasize high yield strategies so that the point of implementing a technology is that it can provide the greatest good for the greatest number of students. So student information systems are a good example of this. That we need to keep track of how all the students are learning so that we can assess the quality of the education system as a whole. Out-of-school technologies, on the other hand, really focus on customization strategies. How can I take the technology and make it do what I want it to do? And you could clearly see how this contrast plays out, but Facebook would be a nice example of a customization strategy where I could do whatever I want with it, participate however much I want with it, I can make it do all kinds of things that maybe the designers didn't even think were possible. Where schools, because they're trying to focus on outcomes for the greatest number of learners, need to focus on high yield strategies, um, out of school learning environments, can focus on just providing tools for people to use in general. Another point of contrast is that schools need technologies that are reliable. They need to to have stuff that not only is reliable in a technical sense but also reliable in an outcome sense. And so, for example, the What Works approach to um, to, uh, uh, promoting the what works approach to curriculum focuses on how can we guarantee the outcomes for the greatest number of students by using this particular intervention. Out-of-school technologies go in completely the other direction. They're very, they focus on, they're eclectic. And especially, this is especially true if you consider the number of technologies that are available for the number of people who use them. Some people like social networking, some people like you know, working with PDAs, some people like word processors, other folks like gaming. There's all kinds of different needs of, of that, that learners have outside of school, and the range of technologies that are available to them fit all these different kinds of needs.
0: And I think it's interesting. Somebody brought up the iPod or the iTouch, iPod Touch, as a customized um, learn learner-centered tool, and I would say if you start watching what's happening with those touches and schools that are doing one-to-one with touches, I almost think they're being co-opted as a tool for putting out data, deciding what, applica- you know, what, what application can I use, they're being used to record data that goes into learning systems, and, and I think it might be interesting to watch to see if this isn't another Mindstorm kind of idea that quickly becomes co-opted into a learning versus learner-centered tool.
1: Yeah, that's a great point, Annette. I mean, the, the, the fate of handheld technologies in schools is yet to be determined, but it's certainly possible and it's, proba- it, it's probable that handheld devices will simply be co-opted into the learning game and that individuation and customization that, that mobile devices do so well is going to be diminished in a schooling environment. The third point, the contrast we wanted to make, is is that um, technologies for learning focus on a fidelity model of implementation. There's the intended outcomes for a particular technology and successful use of the technology is, do you get it right? As opposed to out-of-school learning technologies which focus on adaptive models of implementation. You see this in a lot of gaming technology, right, where where the, the next version of the game includes a lot of the uses that people found in the first version of the game. Or if you have modding tools for games like Command and Conquer or World of Warcraft, not, not I'm sorry, not World of Warcraft, but uh, the traditional Warcraft, Civilization, the modding tools allow players to create completely different worlds that they can play in and so the success of the technology out of school is how adaptive is it, not how correctly do you use it. The fourth contrast you wanted to draw is learning as a tested consequence of means. Schools take learning seriously and and it's true I think as we've seen in in our chat window that learning gets operationalized and some people would say reduced to achievement in terms of standardized test outcomes, um, and that that of course is a, a politically touchy subject of whether that's a legitimate reduction. Um, however, schools are held accountable for, for providing uh, for for demonstrating that they provided learning, and the way that the the, the, the way that the political debate has evolved, if your impl- if your intervention doesn't lead to learning then there's going to be questions about it. Learning has to be a tested consequence of the means that you put into place in order to justify the investment in a a given technology. Whereas for out-of-school technologies, learning is sort of like maybe it happens, maybe it doesn't, maybe you get an insight, maybe it doesn't. And learning is is sort of complicated in out-of-school environments. There's at least two levels of learning. One of them Take like a, a typical video game, for example. Learning a video game means learning how to play the game. It's just like learning how learning about basketball means how to play basketball. There's not really transfer to anything outside the game. If there is a lesson that you can draw about sort of um, uh, the, 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 uh, um, the applicability of an in game insight to an out of game experience, that's great. That's a happy consequence. Some, often, those kinds of happy consequences tend to be very powerful and they can be sort of life transforming, but they're not reliable and they're not very predictable.
0: With that. No, but I, the conversation on the side has jumped already to your next slide because they want to know what happened. How did we lose the idea? And Tim or Aaron brought us right into it all happens outside schools. It did happen. All these things we're talking right. about occurred. It's just where they're occurring is, is the discussion.
1: I think the, the the deep point that we want to make in the paper is that because schools had already bought into a particular kind of technology that aimed at at uh, the, the generation of mass learning gains across institutions, they also Biased their selection of which kinds of technologies they were going to find it easy to adapt, and the public, though in general outside of schools, didn't make that same bet. I mean, the public outside of schools is not committed to an early 20th century learning approach. They're committed to the learning approach that we have right now, which is very learner-centered and customization, customi- customization-based. The one last point I want to make about this slide, though, is the contrast between democratic and meritocratic, because I think I'm following the discussion thread on the side too. I think NCLB and schools come out the bad guy in this this discussion often. And I think I want to make a point here that may may be controversial, but we'll see how it goes. Schools are still committed to the democratic ideals of making sure that we have the, the, the most learning for the most people. And out-of-school learning environments do not make a similar commitment. There's very, very many cases where games um, and and, uh, digital media learning environments reward the people who work the hardest. And it's just a bare fact that not all people work hard in digital learning environments. And so you get huge amounts of attrition in game environments, for example, where you have if, if uh, we have people in the audience who, are, who play World of Warcraft, you know, for, for, every, for every player of Warcraft who gets to level 20, there's thousands of people that drop out. And for every, peop- every person who gets to level 80, there's tens of, thousands of people that, uh, tens of thousands of people that drop out. Schools simply can't afford to embrace technologies that are that meritocratic because of their commitment to democratic access to learning outcomes. They just can't afford to do it. And so it sort of gives a a different perspective on how schools um, because of their ideological commitments and their political commitments, just simply can't afford to adopt the technologies that flourish in many out-of-school environments.
0: And I think that that's a fair point and that takes us back to as. As educators, for the most part, we strongly believe in that democratic ideal. And again, I would go back, most of us really, really believe in equity. And we want fair and equitable access for our students. And I think that's even true as I'm watching the discussion about labs and one to ones that's going on on the side. And how do you do that? How do you have that kind of learning environment that still adapts technologies for learners? What do we do?
1: to the next slide. One of the ways that that we try to capture the difference between technologies for learners and technologies for learning in the paper is a contrast between virtual charters and fantasy sports, both of which use very similar technologies to very different ends. Virtual charters, like many other virtual schools, have ended up replicating some of the core practices of teaching and learning in schools. They just make it online. So they take a lot of the approaches to instruction that are, you know, you read something, you talk about it, you provide an answer, you get a grade on it, and take that cycle and put it in an online environment. They allow for uh, they allow us to surmount the challenges of distance and the challenges of presence, but they still commit to a democratic view of we need to provide learning opportunities so that all of the kids in this environment have an equal chance at, at success. Fantasy sports, on the other hand, is a very meritocratic environment where, and I don't know how many, maybe you guys can indicate, how many of you are fantasy sports players?
0: Do we have any fantasy sports players?
1: Are there, are there some in the, in the house? Could you raise your hands? One?
0: <laughs> Wait, who's, who was the one? That wasn't us, was it?
1: No. Just one person. Oh, there it is. Yeah,
0: Joyce. Yep. Oh, look at all the nose.
1: Okay. Yep. Okay, so I'll, g- I'll give. You a know
0: what? Let me ask a question. How many of you either teach at or have experience with virtual charters? Well, that's interesting. Oh. Nobody. Nobody's from a virtual charter. Okay. Well,
1: so I'll tell you, uh, but you're familiar with what virtual charters are. Yes. In hands. No.
0: Okay. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? uh, Um. Here, I still see a few answers coming up. Virtual charter schools, um, at least in the state of Wisconsin, and I think in a lot of other states, our schools can leave the public schools and get their high school diploma online completely, K-12. They can go to and the money goes with them. These are public schools that are 100 percent online, um, including PE. They meet all the same requirements, state standards that a walled brick-and-mortar school would meet and the students then participate via their computer, their some of them do it in libraries, but as long as they can have internet access they can attend school.
1: And one of you mentioned about Florida. Florida Virtual is a yeah. both has a school and is a uh, content provider for many other virtual schools. There's a couple of big companies that provide the curriculum content and the, the discussion around virtual school has been often um, linked to um, uh, political goals about how we provide access to kids for public school resources outside of public schools. Consequently, or maybe not consequently, maybe because of the because they are ch- public schools, they're committed to the same kinds of curriculum that you see in traditional schools. It's just that they take the distance. Um, um, they allow allow people to access the resources at distance.
0: And I would, if you how. Um if you've read um, Disrupting Class, there's an argument that what is it, what percentage of students will leave brick and mortar and move into virtual schools? My comfort with that is not as great as some because I think most people are jumping into virtual charters thinking it's a for learner environment and are quickly discovering it's the same content, the same curriculum, and they have very little input or ability to be creative within that structure. So I think we're going to start to see some of that balance itself out. The expectation is not what they're getting.
1: So the contrast to this is fantasy sports, and fantasy sports is a, it's an, an enormous market. Now there's uh, over, I don't know, uh, 15, 20 million people who play fantasy sports. Um, The way a fantasy sports uh, league works is that, say you take fantasy baseball, uh, Major League Baseball for example, Um, uh, a a group of owners get together and draft players from a baseball team and then follow their statistics throughout the course of a year. And the owner whose team has the best statistics wins, whether you're playing for money or whether you're playing for fun. But the premium in fantasy sports is to be able to predict which players are going to do well and to be able to analyze the resulting statistics so that you can get a leg up on, on, on your competition. Fantasy sports uses a lot of the same technology as virtual charters. The fantasy sports world lives on the Internet. Typically the owners don't live in the same place. There's a central site where all of the player moves, the roster moves, the trades, all that kind of stuff are stored, and where the sti- statistics are accumulated. Fantasy sports has probably about as many players as virtual charters have students, but the interaction is very different. In fantasy sports, there's there's players who win, or the owners who's, who win, and many owners, if you got, get out of the running and you're sort of um, uh, in last place or in the in the second division by the by the you know midpoint of the year, you lose interest and you just sort of drift away. And there's no real penalty for it because only one only one team wins anyway. The way fantasy sports works, though, is that you you um, in order to persuade the other owners of the legitimacy of your moves, you have to create arguments to to like get players in trades or make rule changes and things like that. So you learn about the inter- intricacies of player performance and the league rules by interacting with other players in the league. Fantasy sports create what uh, Henry Jenkins and, and some of his researchers call um, participatory communities, where people learn with each other about a complex enterprise, in this case baseball or, or football. And the, the learning community really facilitates the learning. Do you say anything but you following the chat.
0: I'm following the chat, yeah, I'll, kept, I'll get, oh, Farmville. They're using Farmville in okay. comparison. Good. That's a good one. I hadn't yeah. thought of that one. Mm-hmm.
1: So the, the issue for us is that in a virtual charter the environment is provided for students. Students don't really have much of a say other than to choose their courses and to get their work done. All the learning is provided for the students, and in return, the students give learning outcomes to the system, whereas in fantasy sports, you choose everything. You choose your players. You choose who you're going to interact with. It's a learner-focused environment. You could choose not to play, too, so that it's an opt-in kind of technology rather than virtual, in virtual charters. Once you're a member of the system, it's an opt-out form of technology. So this sort of draws a contrast between the kinds of tech, the ways in which schools adapt technologies to their to their outcomes versus the ways that the entertainment world takes the same kinds of tools and creates new kinds of, uh, new forms of interaction from them. Well, you know
0: what? Somebody said that Farmville is a time suck, and I would say fantasy football can be a time suck, and I would say Facebook could be a time suck. So I would algebra. say oh, yeah, algebra could be a time suck. So how would we take those things that are technologies for learners and make them work so that kids want to be doing those things? What are what is it that we have op, you know co-opted our technology to do that makes them not time sucks, that makes the kids go into the lab and you know most of the students in my high school that go into the lab for a class lesson are are not in there for a time suck. They're ready to be done when they're done because it's not stimulating or engaging their mind.
1: So our Our discussion was really about how a central contrast between technology for learners versus technology for learning captures some of the differences in the ways that schools either adapt or reject technologies. And as Annette just said, the challenge that we have as technology leaders in the next decade is to bridge, to create links between the worlds that the technology world that lives outside the school with the one that lives in the school. Now, it's probably the case that we could continue going the direction that we are going, which is, you know, to have uh, uh, protected, secure, appropriate use-guided technology inside of schools and let everything outside of schools thrive, except we're creating a, we're sort of reinforcing a schizophrenic view of how our kids interact with technology in the world they live in both worlds and as long as schools omit one of the worlds we are forcing kids to try to come up with the reconciliation and there's many people in the private sector who want to to uh, you know reconcile the two uh, versions of of technology there's many applications for mobile and and uh, web-based technologies that allow kids to cheat during school in order to get take advantage of 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 new technologies. What's missing from the discussion is the push from schools to figure out how to make this bridge, to bring social networking and to bring gaming into schools in a legitimate way that allows kids to have a holistic, integrated technology, information technology world, rather than the schizophrenic world that they currently live in.
0: Um, Well, yes, but I'm also trying to watch the conversation because I think the point is being made that, and it's kind of my turn to, to maybe upset a few people, but we can make all the excuses we want to. We're the leaders. So when we say, but my kids can't, or I only have this, or it's our job to find a way to create that bridge. It's not our job to make excuses. And so I think you know, the key is to go back to something Tim said earlier, is how do we make that space for our teachers? Or how do we make that space for our students? Or how do we reconceptualize what we're doing to create that instead of saying, these are all of the things I can't do?
1: One of the things that, that I've been thinking about lately and lately talking to people is what's the legitimate connection that we can have between a school information system and a learning management system that organizes instruction, classroom practices, and social networking systems that help orchestrate social interaction. Almost everybody who works in education lives in those three worlds, but those three worlds are rarely connected with each other. The biggest disconnect, I think, is between the student information system and the social networking world, which aren't even seen as the same kinds of things. But the underlying technologies are very similar across um, uh, student information systems, learning management systems, and social networking. And so the, there's no technological reason why they can't be linked together. It's the, the issue is, can we as education leaders link them together in ways that protect the security of the student information system and the the integrity of the learning management system and the privacy of the the social networking systems. Can we make systems that that link those three um, affordances together? Because if we can, we'll do a lot, we'll make a big step towards bridging this gap between technologies for learning and technologies for learners.
0: Yeah, I guess at this point these are. Oh, <laughs> she likes that idea, Rich. Yeah. Um, we'd like to open it up for your questions and comments. Do, you, Aaron? Do you, there we go. I see Aaron's turning the mics on.
2: Only you might want to encourage. <laughs> only if might want to, to raise her hand before they speak. People to raise their hand before Get the they, they speak. the echo. Get
0: the echo. I, I like Tim's point um, that privacy is, may not even be possible anymore unless you stay completely off the network. It's the same thing um, I saw somebody earlier say, well, we can't even get to that at school. Um, I know that my students get to whatever they want at school. I might have a filter, but that's just one of those illusions of control that we like as adults. They can, and I'm just wondering if private, privacy hasn't become one of those other illusions. I think
1: that privacy concerns are legitimate, though. I mean, I work in a, in a research university and almost every decision that we make about developing new technologies begins with security and privacy. And I guess one of my issues is that if we started, if we began our discussion with linkage and interaction, what would our systems look like? If we didn't have FERPA and HIPAA requirements on the privacy of student records and who could access them and who couldn't access them, what kinds of systems would we build?
2: I think
3: that means Okay. On the subject of privacy, privacy I, really I really think, think that, that uh, this echo is really weird, isn't it? <laughs> uh, I really think that the um, this this all ties into we have to be teaching students about how they present themselves in the real world. Uh, right now we don't we don't even address um, how how do you present yourself? How do you write a blog so that you know that people understand what you're saying and, and that you're saying things in a in a, a good way? How do you um, present yourself on uh, on Facebook for example so that you're giving people a good image or at least the image you want them to see and so I think that all ties in with the privacy issue because it's a matter of teaching kids how to present themselves so that they're not giving away well too much I guess
0: and I think that's interesting because I'm not sure that what we consider appropriate presentation and personal information is the same as what they consider um privacy, personal, and um, something not worth sharing. I I think that we could attempt to teach them based on our norms, but I I'm not even sure it would be the same conversation.
1: Yeah, I I agree with Annette. I think that one of the one of the issues for educators typically in this in this area is um the the the, the concept or the, or the or the representation of person in digital spaces is rapidly shifting and so what is a legitimate uh, presence in a social network what is a legitimate presence as an author in the world it's a, it's a sh- the world is shifting and it's it's difficult for us to to use standards for a non-virtual world to um, judge appropriate conduct in a virtual world. Now there's some things that are clearly inappropriate, but um, I saw somebody in the discussion a little while ago say, you let people post uh, updates to your, to your Facebook, um, uh, to your Facebook page or right on your board? And I think, like, yeah, that's a really good discussion. Uh, what, what does that look like? What, what are the norms? What are the legitimate norms in that world? I don't think they've been completely worked out yet.
0: Well, and I think of that because, you know, I have a Facebook page and my daughter has a Facebook page and my daughter's grandparents have Facebook pages because that's just about the only way they get to talk to her regularly if they want to. And when her grandparents came online, I went to her Facebook page and checked all her pictures and said, now, do you really want your grandparents to see that you've been sitting in this bar or that you have friends with these tattoos or that, because remember, these are your grandparents. And she said, this is me and this is who I am and if they want to talk to me and know who I am then yes that's what i want there so my idea of privacy and protection in hers were just not even on the same conversation plane and she's in her mid 20s so i'm not even talking to my 15 year old niece who has a whole other definition of this is who i am and i'm okay but uh, at uh,
3: point and i was, I was I mean, the point I was trying to make, to make, is, to make is that I, do, I really don't, you know, we, for example, we we teach uh, students how to write it for different situations. And there's, you know, we 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 don't really teach them to write for the web, but that's another story. But, I mean, in the same way that we teach them to write for different audiences in different situations, we need to make them understand that there are different audiences out there, and different audiences may not interpret things correctly. And I don't think we'll ever um, be able to teach students that um you know the the way that we want them to to behave, but we we don't teach kids to do that anyway I mean if you look at most teenagers, they make a business out of uh you know rebelling against whatever the adults say to do, but I think we have to give them some guidance and make them understand that when they put material on the web. It's not going away. Even if you even if you pull it down, it's not going away because somebody's cached it somewhere.
0: Yeah, I, I would agree with that, and I would say that as the leaders, part of our job is to be listening to the students and to listening and listening to the shifts that are happening around us, so that when we're teaching that, we're doing it. Um, for that virtual environment and we're not doing what Rich talked about earlier which is overlying the non-virtual into the virtual world. So when Jennifer says there's very little time left, I'm sorry Jennifer, what do you mean by that?
1: Yeah, well, when we're waiting, waiting for Jennifer to get back, um, Aaron asked a good question before I thought about what, what technologies are people using or what, what technologies have actually influenced teaching and learning? And I think the in-school question is more difficult, but the out-of-school question is not very difficult at all. The, the methods for teaching and learning in a, in a digital world are advertising and, and, uh, and the Internet. And so, for example, um, I I still am one of the diehard people too that uh, um, does my own taxes. And when every every spring now I get the I get TurboTax up, which has my taxes from the last year. I get a couple of I get the IRS website up. I get um, a couple of other websites that I know give good tax advice. And then and then I go to it and I look for questions online, I look for answers that other people have posted in forums online and I get it done by myself. I have never, I don't know whether I do my taxes right, um, which is a problem with self-directed learning, but um, I do my taxes every year and I've learned how to invest in the, in, the, uh, in the stock market and I learned how to buy a house and I learned how to do all kinds of things by people who are teaching me in an asynchronous way, by putting information out that I could find. And that model of instruction is just very different than what, what we see in schools. Now this goes back to one of the main points um, that we tried to make in the presentation and in the paper, that just because there's a new mode of teaching that's available in, on the internet doesn't mean it's appropriate for the goals and the outcomes that we're looking for in schools.
0: And and I don't want you to be confused to think that we're saying that technology should be integrated. What we're saying is technology should be used so that the learner has the most appropriate experience for the learner and in that case I think sometimes curriculum needs to be replaced or co-opted. Because we've done, we've used the information systems, the learning systems, the student management systems. We've, we've had integration. It hasn't changed anything.
1: Well, and it hasn't changed anything as, as far as like teaching history. Right. But it has changed people in the way that they, I mean, it's changed your job.
0: Right. Yeah. But in terms of learners and their experience and experience. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Wait, Aaron, clarify, we have had integration. I do not agree with that. Are you not agreeing with me?
2: No, no I'm yeah, not I'm, I'm I'm disagreeing, I'm with, disagreeing that. with that. I don't think we've had I don't integration. We've had integration. Lots of Lots schools. Of schools. Um, for, for, for yeah, example, if, if we've had we integration, if we've had had integration we've had is when we've had, in had computers in place. But I think we had somebody mention in the early discussion earlier on discussion early that they didn't have time to get the, computers because, to of get other the computers because of other things. I would, I I would to say, to say that, say that that's, that's much more of what we've seen in the last uh, maybe decade, that the, the computer is uh, kind of extra, not really an integration. But we've definitely had the hardware there in place. I so, think one of the, so po- oh go, go ahead, go ahead. So maybe I'm misunderstanding what you're saying with integration, but I I really don't see that we've had integration in place. I think that we've had stuff in place. Um, A good example I can can think of is, you know, those of us that were around in the 80s and 90s, you know, screaming about, it's about the learning, it's about the learning while everybody in IT was uh, struggling over hardware, it's hardware, you know, in the schools that bought a bunch of hardware but had no learning, no software that teachers could use to apply the learning. So, anyway, I, I'm just, I'm wondering if what you're talking about integration wise and what I'm thinking about are the same thing.
1: One of the points we try to make in the paper is that that administrative practices in this in schools have been transformed. Um, classroom teaching has not been transformed. I think your point about uh, you know the, the the stuff, the actual uh, the classroom materials, the the, the classroom uh, the instructional stuff, just hasn't made much of an impact. And the, the the reason why I think we're we're pushing in this direction is that the technologies that reinforce the existing goals in schools, which are for outcomes for the greatest number of students, tend towards more bureaucratic technologies. Like, maybe we could have a show of hands here. Are there any, does anybody work in a school that doesn't have a student information system? So all of your schools have student information systems. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a big deal because now in 2010 our schools are completely different than they were in 1995 because they have student information systems and it's really changed how people think about administration in schools. Seymour Papert was not thinking about the transformation of administrative practices; he was thinking about the transformation of learning. And the uh, the uh, the the main argument in our paper is that technologies have changed schools, just not in the ways that, that we anticipated. And the hard work about changing the interaction of teachers and learners and changing the practices of learning still have yet to be developed.
0: Um, so any of the questions? Well, yeah, Aaron just asked a question. Do you think that the separate walls between IT and instructional folk- folks has helped them? When you say helped this, Aaron, do you mean yeah. that we've had more administrative success?
2: Yeah, yeah. I I, I guess I what guess I'm, what saying, I'm is saying is that that, that that has that wall really fostered the fact that um, administrating schools has really has really um, been a big use and a big change inside of schools as opposed to the instructional side.
0: I think one thing Rich and I both said earlier is it's hard to find a bad guy or a blame in any of this. I think that could be one piece of it. I think another piece could is the accountability, I think another piece is equity, I think another piece is the ability... the, the the general concern of teachers to want to have the same for everyone, and it's a lot easier to do that in administrative ways than it is in teaching and learning ways. Um, I think you can put a lot of things into that um, concept
1: or idea. One other thing, too, is that um, um, I bet the work of many of you who have been around for a while as technology leaders has shifted a lot in the last 15 years. I know when I was in the in the early 1990s, I was a uh, technology coordinator before I went into grad school and became a professor. And most of the work that I did was helping teachers use technology in their classrooms. Um, but when I talk with folks who do technology work now, it's just not the case. Many of them are their job is to maintain the student information system, to maintain maintain the information, the administrative system about how to keep the servers up. And and that's it's just a really different way of looking at 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 the at where technology has been used in schools and shift taking the discourse back from the administrative side and into the classroom I think is a, is a is, a, is a, an important priority for technology leaders in education.
0: Well I was going to kind of went back to the equity argument and that we need to focus on meeting student needs um, and not equity so much and I also see there's a strong all of a sudden an argument has started about interactive whiteboards and i'm I'm going to throw a question back to the conversation because why have we shifted from our idea about technology for learning and learners to what about interactive whiteboards where do you see those meeting the needs of your students
3: you know you
2: know And then I was going to say that earlier we were talking about the fact that um, some people are in places where interactive whiteboards have just been put into classrooms. um, And that's it. And Tim was actually bringing up, talking about the fact that inside of some classrooms the interactive whiteboard is just an electronic blackboard. Um, It really hasn't contributed to moving learning in a different way or instruction in a different way. So it's interesting how this is um, also, you know, fitting your topic of how this is a, like a microcosm technology that's come in that also maybe is not changing teaching or learning in the school.
0: My question to the group is how much of it is, I, I think it has the potential to, just like I think touches do. iPod touches have the potential to be about the learner, but as I'm reading through your examples and what you're talking about, I still don't see how that interactive whiteboard and that software is about learner-centered goals or learner processes. And so I keep watching to see if there's someone who's going to... One,
1: one issue I think if, if we um, uh, I want to shift the topic a little bit from whiteboards is um, where is the change likely to happen in schools where we finally shift to learner directed um, mm. instruction? And I think one of the one of the areas that's actually quite powerful in schools already is in special ed with the IEP model. And many of many schools, including many of your schools, I'm sure, have adapted the IEP sort of stripped away the bureaucratic and the legalistic parts of the IEP process and developed student placement teams, student service teams, student um, intervention teams that allow you to customize instructional resources to the needs of individual kids. Um, sometimes, well, I, I got to be careful when I say this because schools are sometimes reluctant to talk about this this adaptation of special ed practices because They're afraid that it's using special ed resources for non-special ed kids. But this is a really nice example of how within schools there's a movement to try to customize learning to the needs of individual learners. And if we can bring technology to bear to figure out not only how to assess learning needs but to provide learning opportunities on this individualized basis, it's already a a device that's available in many schools. And I think there's some real resilience and potential for this sort of quasi IEP process to to act as the model for customizing learning for individual learners.
0: Um, One of the questions that came up was about whether instruction will change when the social networking tools become tailored to the individual learner and I think that's what Rich was trying to say is how can we develop that and you can talk about that more, merge it with what we have to create those learning experiences.
1: Yeah, I think Jerry, you brought up a really good point. Is the IEPs don't really allow the students to direct their own learning. The IEPs still are done for students, not by students. Um, but there's the the movement in social networking software where people select the kind of things that they want to affiliate with and select the groups that they want to affiliate with. You could see how that could coincide with uh, sort of a quasi IEP process to allow kids. To, co- to construct a, a learning plan or a portfolio of learning goals that would allow them to customize learning resources to what they're interested in. It's, I'm not saying that we're there yet, and we're certainly, the IEP process and special ed certainly is as responsible as any, for anything else as dictating what kids need to learn. But if you're looking for places where the development might happen, where the bridge might be built, I think that's a really good candidate.
0: Well, I think Alicia brings up a good point that students do have the ability to participate but parents and teachers don't encourage this. Just like students have the ability to create and participate with any of the technologies we bring in and that's where I go back to we're the leaders. It's our job to create the spaces, the opportunities, the workarounds, the problem solutions to make those things happen.
1: Yeah, I'm following the discussion that you're having about the IEPs. Um, I think we. I think we still. In schools, we still have to make we're, we're still committed to the idea of providing learning opportunities for our learners. And technology can assist with this process. The IEP, for me, it, it points like if you had to point to areas in a school program where you have the potential to bridge technologies for learning and learners this is a place where it could happen. It's going to take creative thought and people are willing to think outside the boundaries to make it happen. But as some of you are saying, you're already moving in this direction.
0: When I was about to go back to the comment that someone made earlier about fear and Jerry brought fear up again, and I think it's interesting because we keep talking about teachers need professional development. Do they need professional development in Technology, or do they need professional development in risk taking and fear management?
1: I think yeah, that's that's a good point, Annette. I think that um, one one of the ways to oh. one, one of the ways to uh, to address risk taking and fear management is to provide good models of what the practice might look like, and I think we we do need folks who can think across the inside-outside technology domains to figure out where are the points within school that are best suited um, best suited for, um, uh, for new technologies and then to really push in those areas to provide viable models that other folks can look for.
0: Erin um, tells us we are down to our last five minutes. Is there any last questions or comments that we can Address for you. Yes, the.
1: well i I want to say one one last thing before you folks all leave is that the paper that we wrote is, connected to a, a book that I put out with my colleague Alan Collins. I'll put the title up here. It's called, um, what is it called? It's <laughs> oh not title. the
0: title, so that's that's humorous right there. It's
1: called we type this in? Yes. Rethinking technology.
2: While Rich is digging that While out. While Rich is digging that out. I do you want to uh, remind people I do want to remind people there is, there is a, a way that way we, are we are collecting, as Christy, as Christy information, information about um, what you feel about it about about these sessions, these and, sessions. That and that by is by making, making sure you, participate, sure you participate, participate, participate inside the surveys that we, that have. we have. They're giving and good, and good information good back, back to the presenters, presenters but, great but great information as well back, back, back to Christy, Christy so we know so how know this is working for you and um, where we want to go next. So I'm going to pop this up. There's the survey link that's there. So go ahead, Rich. I just want to make sure that people who are going to leave have an opportunity to take the survey and tell you how great this session was.
1: Okay, we posted the the link to the book. The book is sort of a, it's a book-length exploration of a lot of the same issues that we talk about in the paper. We go more into issues of video gaming, the history of schools, um, what information systems are going to look like, what are the risks of um, the new technologies, and what are the promises of the new technologies.
2: Okay. Great, um I see some people are still uh typing things in. I want to remind you about the surveys, but uh, I personally want to give a big uh, big round of applause here to our presenters. This was an absolutely fabulous session. Um, very excited uh, about the information and and frankly uh it just had sent a message to Tim asking whether we have that book around. <laughs> so thank you both. This is absolutely been a fantastic session. Um, your contact information is up there. I remind people about taking the survey. Um, please make sure you do and give us feedback and give uh, both Rich and Annette feedback on how much you enjoyed the session. Um, for those of you that are sticking around for this 7 o'clock session, we're going to ask you to leave the room so that it can be reset for the um, next, um, for the 7 o'clock session. So thank you both, Annette and Rich. And for those of you that are still here, if we could ask you to uh, move out of the room so that we can reset it for the next presentation, that would be great.
3: All right, out, Summer, out.